1: This is its Political Currency
0: with Ed Balls
1: and George Osborne.
0: So here we are back again, another week, another podcast.
1: Lots of lions this week for you, Ed, because you haven't been on GMB.
0: I've not been getting up at 3.30 in the morning, that's true. I'm actually off to Athens on Monday. I'm doing an OECD mission to advise the Greek finance ministry and the parliamentarians on public spending and output targets for public spending. So I've been working on my presentation for the Greeks. Right. Most
1: people just go to sit on the beach when they go to Greece. You do realise that, Ed. I'm just
0: there for one night and it's only work. <laughs> right. No beach.
1: Well, I, I went to Nigel Lawson's memorial service, which was, it was actually a celebration of his life because he lived to a ripe old age. And it was an extraordinary gathering of the uh, Tory tribe. So, faces you go, my God, is that person still alive? He wrote probably the best ever book about being a Chancellor of the Checker. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to agree with you because I haven't yet written my book about being Chancellor of the Exchequer. I thought you weren't going to write a book. I remember you saying that to me, that you didn't think that you should do a book. No, I'm contracted to uh, write
0: a book. And let me be absolutely clear to my publisher and my agent that that is still the intention. So you're not going to do a Boris Johnson, take the money and then not deliver the book and have to give the advance back in the end?
1: Well, I think Boris Johnson would probably be better at, sticking at writing books rather than... Um, Becoming a politician
0: <laughs> discuss. Anyway.
1: Right. So look, on today's show, of course, and you know, dominating events over the last few days have been the stories of what's going on in Gaza and Israel, what's happened to the hostages who were taken by Hamas, the horrific deaths at the hospital in Gaza. We're going to be talking about Rishi Sunak being there in Israel as we record this podcast. President Biden was there yesterday. What does this all mean in particular for British politics? And What are the pressures on
0: the Labour leader in this situation? Then the big story of the week we're going to talk about as well is the green budget, the annual report from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which comes out before the Chancellor's autumn or budget statement. And they say that we are heading for recession next year. They also say there's some quite big problems with the public finances below the surface. So we'll talk about that.
1: And then we always like to point to something that people aren't talking about quite enough in our view, and that is the COVID inquiry is meeting again. It had a summer break, and it's got the big political names of the COVID era, Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, and the like, giving evidence later this autumn. Does that matter? Is the inquiry going to come to any conclusions that are going to be useful for future governments? And what does it mean for the domestic politics now that we're through the worst of COVID? But first of all, Israel-Gaza? Yeah. so obviously horrific stories still coming out of Israel and the fate of the hostages and the tragedy of the deaths in Gaza in the hospital, which, by the way, President Biden has now attributed to Islamist extremists, not Hamas, but an allied group inside uh, Gaza, but has caused Israel no end of diplomatic problems this week, all while the President of the United States, Joe Biden, was there and to the British Prime Minister Rishi
0: Sunak is there now while we're recording this podcast. There's been all this criticism of the um, the ageing President Biden, but actually he's, um, I think he's done it really well over the last uh, 10 days. He's walking a delicate balancing act and he's been supporting Netanyahu, but at the same time publicly pressurising for for humanitarian access from Egypt through the Rafa crossing in the, the south. Um He's looked like he's on his game. I mean, he's a very, very experienced person in this kind of um, situation. And uh, I wonder what Rishi Sunak hopes to achieve by being there.
1: Well, I think for Rishi Sunak, is relatively straightforward. I think he wants to demonstrate solidarity. The truth is that Britain's role in this entire crisis is quite marginal. But the German Chancellor has also been in Israel. The French president is on his way. And there's nothing wrong with the elected leader of our country being there just to say we're with you, Israel, as you uh, deal with the aftermath of this horrific terrorist attack, whilst at the same time supporting Joe Biden's messages on humanitarian aid. I thought it was interesting, you know, when we started off in politics, you used to hear American presidents saying we're not the world's policemen anymore. This is what George W. Bush, ironically, given what happened to his presidency, came into office saying it's what Barack Obama said. And yet, when there's a crisis like this, people aren't looking to the Chinese president or the Indian prime minister or the uh, president of the European Council to turn up and try and broker a, a, a some sort of solution. It's, it's all eyes on the American president. And I thought, I agree with you, that Joe Biden showed some political courage turning up. Because Lots can go wrong and you you know, for the leader of your country to put himself into a fast moving, difficult situation carries political risk for him at home. And Joe Biden, very experienced diplomat in his role as a senator and vice president before he became president, threw himself into it and seems to have achieved something on the margins around access for humanitarian aid to Gaza from the south.
0: Well, we said last week that um, leaders in public would be declaring support for Israel, But in private, they would be worrying about how events were going to develop. And in some ways over the last week from Joe Biden in particular, some of those worries have been have been publicly expressed.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think there's also this very interesting situation. You would assume in in any kind of foreign policy crisis that the person in our country with the most difficult job is the prime minister or perhaps the foreign secretary. You know, they, after all, are the person who has to lead Britain's response to an international situation. But in this case, I think it's the Labour leader who's had the hardest task, partly because of the recent history of the Labour Party, and partly because in some ways, as the opposition leader, you can't just sort of do things, you can't necessarily launch initiatives, you're judged entirely by what you say. And I don't know what you think, Ed, but Starmer has found himself in a quite difficult situation over the last week.
0: In Prime Minister's questions yesterday, I thought he got the tone absolutely right. Cross-party support, condemning terror, supporting Israel's right to self-defence, but also talking about the importance of protecting all human life um, with a humanitarian access for those suffering in Gaza. His problem was that a week ago on an LBC interview, he... He delivered a different message, and that's caused a lot of internal problems for him. Shall we
1: hear what he said? Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself, and Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate, cutting off power, cutting off water. I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Obviously, everything should be done within international law, but I don't want to step away from the sort of core principles that Israel has a right to defend herself. So explain to us why that answer to that question on on the LBC has proved so difficult inside the Labour Party in the last few days.
0: Well, it has been very difficult. I was, uh, in touch with an old colleague of mine, Liam Byrne, who's now an MP in, um, Birmingham. And, uh,
1: he wrote that famous letter, didn't
0: he? He wrote the famous letter. There's no money left. Yeah, and he's also, that was not a great thing for him to do. And oh, um, I'm, I'm enormously grateful. Let's not open that up again. We'll come back to that some other time, Ellie. He also has just been elected chair of the Business Committee in Parliament, but he was telling me that he had had thousands of emails in the days after the Keir Starmer interview. Lots of concern in Muslim communities. And of course, there were lots of Labour seats with high Percentages of, of Muslim voters in those constituencies. And that's where the problems have really happened. I think what Keir Starmer was thinking to himself was, I must stay close to Rishi Sunak in supporting Israel to to make clear this was a big change from the Corbyn years But in so doing, he certainly took his eye off the ball But there's also deep scars from what happened after the Iraq War, a big fall in Muslim voting in those constituencies for Labour in 2005. And it's easy to say, you know, this is just the left. And if you look in in Parliament this week, there was a um, um, a motion being put down by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and others calling for an immediate ceasefire. I don't think Keir Starmer is going to worry too much about that. Out on the streets, there's a bit of activity happening from the old George Galloway respect uh, movement, which has caused difficulty. But I think the reason why Labour MPs have found it hard is because... It's been much more broad-based than that. Big worries in those communities, but also the councillors who represent those communities feeling very, very uncomfortable that they were under huge pressure. Not necessarily to to choose between Israel and Palestine to join demonstrations, but when you have vigils worrying about loss of life in Gaza and they don't think they can attend. And, you know, it's just a big change from... I mean, the truth is that in the Ed Miliband... Corbyn era, this wasn't a problem because the reflex of the Labour leadership in those periods was to lean towards supporting the Palestinian cause. That was the reflex. I remember in 2010- I think we
1: should we should say Ed shouldn't we that there are people who you know very legitimately want a second a state for Palestine and have long advocated that and want UN resolutions to adhere to, who Would are you- also absolutely appalled by what's happened with on the, the hands of Hamas, but. I think what's caused a lot of concern is these sort of marches you get on the streets of Britain where people appear to be expressing sympathy with Hamas or, or wearing kind of stickers of the paragliders who killed people at the concert. And of course, there's revulsion, I think, across the political
0: uh, community in Parliament that's right. at that. But that's not the part of the politics which, which is causing problem for Labour MPs. I think if it is sort of anti-Israel anti-Semitic language about um, Israel and its right to exist, if it's um, if it's those you know, choice demonstrations which are condemning Israel for its actions, that's easy because Keir Starmer has been absolutely clear about Israel's right to self-defence and for supporting Israel in its time of need. And I think that's broad-based across the Labour Party with the exception of the hard left. The problem is what's happening in Gaza and the humanitarian crisis. And in that LBC interview, it looked like Keir Starmer was saying that Israel restricting water or electricity was a legitimate political response from Israel. And that is the thing which, of course, what then happens is campaigns jump upon that, email campaigns, a lot of um, unrest is stirred up. And that is the thing which I think has caused a lot of um, problems. And in in Parliament yesterday, Keir Starmer was trying to, to correct what he'd said a week ago by saying that, of course, humanitarian access in Gaza was important. But once you've said something, like he said on LBC a week ago, in the modern social media world, that is put out there and amplified and repeated. And so he ended up just getting a bit on the the back foot, looking like he was on the wrong side of the humanitarian issue. And um, and that's caused a lot of problems for Labour MPs across the country. And
1: do you think uh, Starmer has done enough now to calm things down, or 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 is it just generally the case that if there's if Starmer were the Prime Minister, may well be the Prime Minister in a year's time, this is just going to be a much harder issue for a Labour government to navigate than a Tory government. The truth is, I don't think Sunak is under any pressure, really, from within the Conservative Party. I was in Parliament yesterday. I don't often go there, but I was giving evidence at a select committee about one of my other jobs, the British Museum chairmanship role. And I was really struck by a couple of the Tory MPs who I met and chatted to in the corridors had Israel flags on their lapels, a bit like you saw the Ukraine flags a year or two ago. And within the Conservative Party, there used to be, when I started out in politics, a a, a quite significant, it was called the Conservative Middle East Council, a sort of pro-Palestinian cause group of MPs. They are very, very small and uninfluential now. But the Conservative Friends of Israel is probably the most, the largest and most successful pressure group within the Conservative Party. I was proud to be a member of it. Indeed, they took me on a trip to Israel, I remember, when I was a candidate, with Boris Johnson, who was also a candidate. They took us to the security wall that had just been built, the fence, uh, out, around the West Bank. Um, Boris Johnson and I were, we were being briefed by a colonel in the IDF, the Israeli military, and he said, it's not an electrified fence, it's not But it is an electric fence. So if you touch it, then it will alert the various army units. And so Boris goes, we're standing there in the middle of the the sort of scrubland with this fence in front of us, looked a bit like a kind of tennis court side. He goes, so I'm not going to die if I go and do this. And he ran up to the fence and he shook it. And sure enough, he wasn't electrified. And all all that happened was this colonel had to kind of quickly get on the radio. I saw him telling the units not to swoop on Boris Johnson and arrest him. Although... Maybe history in Britain would have turned out differently if they had done that. Um, but the, you know, the, the the support for Israel is real; it's deeply felt amongst Conservative MPs. There'll be some concern about what's happening in Gaza, but that it won't it won't be something that Sunak has to worry about as a, as a politician. He might have to worry about it as a prime minister. Well, I mean, uh, and that's that. That is quite different, I think, from the situation that a Labour prime minister would find themselves in.
0: But there's something about. Um getting on the front foot or being on the back foot. One of the things I saw with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown from opposition and then in government, when you had this kind of big international issue, their desire was always to want to be being seen to lead the international effort. Because that's the thing which allows you to show... Not just your MPs, your members, but actually voters on the ground, you're on the case. Think of Tony Blair around Bosnia or Sierra Leone. By the time you got to the financial crisis in 2008, Gordon Brown had been trying to drive those international issues around debt relief and then growth in the global economy for a decade. You know, back in 97, 98, he was... The person, when the world economy was in a real mess, he drove the efforts to have an international statement through the IMF about backing growth. And I think there's something here. I mean, well, a what, year would, ago-
1: what would be the distinctive British contribution, either from a Conservative government or a Labour, Labour opposition? Because I think at the moment, they're all kind of willing the ends, but not the means. They're all saying Hamas must be defeated, but Israel needs to be very careful about going into Gaza. And I think if Benjamin Netanyahu was... Talking directly to them, and I know he did once say this to a British Foreign Secretary who turned up in Jerusalem and said, Oh, you must be careful. We support you in your, you know, uh, efforts to deal with terrorism, but please be careful." He said, "Well, what would you do?" And the British Foreign Secretary was completely stumped. And so we we want that ham- to tell
0: us which one it was. Well, I oh
1: no, I can't go tell on.
0: That. I can't. can't there have not been that many. Was um, it Boris well, Johnson? He,
1: well, he, actually, his surname uh, began with the letter H, but um, that doesn't. That narrows it down, but it doesn't tell you. Exactly so he who. might
0: have been a chancellor. He might have been a chancellor. Right. Let's let's not go there. Uh, look, I mean, there's two different things. There is there's what you are saying for domestic consumption and the impact you're actually going to have on the global stage. But you're saying that
1: you know I think this is fair of both Blair and Brown that they they did uh, were able to identify quite niche issues sometimes about you know. Uh, as you say, the IMF's role in a particular crisis or what Britain could do in some crisis in West Africa that was sort of distinctive. And actually, David Cameron would always put a lot of effort into things like uh, state building in Afghanistan, aid conferences, which weren't
0: necessarily where the Americans were. They were doing the heavy lifting on the kind of military strategy. But we might have been calling for the Americans to do something. And the Americans at the time would always be a bit annoyed about it. I remember the in the Clinton Treasury in, in White House, they were a bit annoyed by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown keep calling on the world, including America, to do things. But in the end, they kind of went along with it because we were quite good at doing it. And actually, Keir Starmer on the vaccine during the pandemic did attempt to lead the argument that there should be international efforts to make sure there was access to vaccines around the world, something Boris Johnson wasn't really engaging in. He did it then. And in the days after the the Hamas attack, people were making the parallel with 9-11. And he saw how Tony Blair, back after 9-11, was putting Britain into a leadership role, rightly or wrongly, in terms of how we did it. He was trying to do it. And I think in retrospect, they will think they ought to have been talking about the humanitarian aspect of this and calling on America or working with the Americans to open up that refer crossing through Egypt rather than sitting back and allowing America only to drive the debate. Because even if we weren't going to influence global events, the appearance of making that argument to a British audience and in particular to those Muslim voters in constituencies across the country who are currently upset and worried and angry, that would have made a difference.
1: And I think there's a, we should just, um, observe this and perhaps then move on to other issues facing the domestic political situation. Foreign policy is not separate from domestic policy. It's often, because it's the rest of the world imposing its events on you, something you can't anticipate in advance. I know in the coalition, it was we were warned that quite often coalitions elsewhere in Europe fell apart because of some foreign policy crisis that had not been anticipated in some coalition agreement that had all been negotiated years earlier. And uh, we were always worried if uh, Iranian nuclear ambitions got to a point where either Israel or Israel and the United States took military action against Iran. By the way, it's not inconceivable that might happen in the next few months. Uh, What would Britain say? What would the British government say? The Liberal Democrats were Clearly against Britain being in any way involved or condoning it, even though there was a very real decision the British Prime Minister had to take, which was whether the uh, British military base at Diego Garcia was used. So, and of course the Iraq War, which you know proved such a formative event for both of our political careers, with
0: direct implications for voting in elections.
1: Right. So people look at these foreign policy crises, and they think they're somehow separate from the domestic crises, and it's not just the Muslim voters in. Key Labour constituencies—it's not just the Jewish vote, which now largely supports the Conservatives. By the way, the Jewish vote used to be largely Labour supporting when I was a child. Now is largely Conservative. It's not just that; it's—it's it's, these events can shake up political leaderships. So they can cause real problems inside political parties. We've seen that over our political careers, and it's something you might see in the uh, months and years ahead.
0: This is the first time I think Keir Starmer has had to deal with one of these moments where a big foreign policy event globally suddenly has very sharp and difficult political implications for him within his own party, amongst his own voters. And uh, so he will be looking back and learning some lessons from the last couple of weeks, I would say.
1: So it may have big domestic implications, these uh, terrible events in the Middle East, but probably not on the two by-elections which are happening as we...
0: Record this people are actually they? voting now
1: they are they are voting in Tamworth in the West Midlands and in mid Beds, which is in the eastern region, basically in Bedfordshire. People know where Bedfordshire is. if you use Luton Airport, you know where uh, you know where Bedfordshire is. so the Tamworth by-election caused by Chris Pincher, the Tory MP who's had to resign over allegations around his sexual behavior, and Nadine Doris and has Nadine. walked off she's walked off in a huff uh, because she didn't get a peerage. And created a by-election in mid-beds. And I think it's fair. I was talking to a pretty senior Tory yesterday when I was making my visit to the House of Commons. He was saying it really is very, very close in both seats. It's a bit of a mugs game on the day of the by-election, make a prediction. I mean,
0: mid-beds has been a Tory seat for 100 years. Yeah,
1: I think it'd be amazing if Labour win mid-beds. Not least because there's also a Liberal Democrat challenge, which, by the way, shows that the Liberal Democrats and Labour have not yet sorted themselves out in terms of tactical New voting. Deal and, then.
0: Tamworth, Tamworth Tamworth was a Labour seat until 2005, and then you guys won it in 2010.
1: I think Labour should win Tamworth. Now, whether they do or not...
0: The majority is like almost 20,000. Yeah, but
1: when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, he won it in each of his elections. Mm. And the boundaries have not significantly changed.
0: The swing, though, in 2010 to the Conservatives was twice the national swing. So something was happening in that seat, whether there was a little bit of boundary change happened after 2005, bit of demographics, something happened, it became harder for Labour. The majority, I think, was 6,000 in 2010. As he said, it's nearly 20,000 now, so it's quite hard.
1: Mm, but I think Labour's been struggling in some of those smaller industrial towns in the Midlands and the North ever since 2010. I remember, I mean, I spent quite a lot of time campaigning in Tamworth precisely because it was a marginal. I remember being there on the same day as Ed Miliband in the 2015 election, seeing the Labour battle bus go past me as I was doing an interview there in the square. And frankly, Labour should be winning a seat like Tamworth. So what's
0: your prediction? for So
1: I'm going to make, a, so as I say, I'm going to be proved wrong in a few hours' time. But I think Labour should win Tamworth and they will be very lucky to win mid-Bedfordshire. If they win mid-Bedfordshire, it's really disastrous for the conservatives. If they if the conservatives will think well Tamworth was hard and you know the mp resigned under a cloud and you know this is the kind of seat in, in the 1980s and early 90s which tories did lose tory governments lost and then still won general elections but if they've also lost mid bedfordshire it is um, armageddon is coming for the tory party.
0: They are both massive majorities. So labor could come close in both and that be a very good result. But the expectation is And the betting markets say Labour's going to win Tamworth, overturn that almost 20,000 majority. So the truth is, you're right. If Labour doesn't win Tamworth now, that would be a bit of a a knockback, a bit of a setback. If Labour comes really close, that's still a good result. I think they are going to win Tamworth. And if they don't, they'll be disappointed. But if Labour was to win Tamworth and mid-beds, it's a political earthquake. I agree with you on that. Anyway, listen, I've got to ask you about the Dean Doris because, you know, oh, yeah. you know her well. And uh, she famously had a pop at you and David Cameron.
1: Not only are Cameron Osborne two posh boys who don't know the price of milk, but they're two arrogant posh boys who show no remorse, no contrition and no... Passion to want
0: to understand the lives of others, and that is their real crime. It's quite important to say that she was actually a conservative member of parliament at the time. Uh, while you know, you were Chancellor David Cameron's well, prime minister, so you wouldn't know that from that clip. The, the irony
1: was that the one thing I did know as Chancellor was the price of milk, <laughs> because it was the one thing you were quite likely to be asked about in an interview, and so I would always walk around. <clears throat> this was, I think, true of Chancellor's for m- many chances before me, Labour and Conservative chances would always have a sheet of what's the price of a litre of milk, what's the or a pint of milk, what's the BBC um, licence fee, how much is unemployment benefit, what's the state pension... What's the minimum wage. What's the minimum wage. And I would walk around with a card with those numbers on it. So I did know the price of milk, Nadine. Unlike you, probably, I was <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, one of the things that was quite frustrating about Nadine, I've known her for years because she was... She uh, lived in, in the area where I was an MP in Cheshire. She had the local shop called the Chocolate Box. Was she um, a member? She was <laughs> She was a member of the local party. And she had this shop in a village called Pressbury, which was right on the edge of my constituency. It wasn't in my constituency, but it was quite like the rest of my constituency. It's where Wayne Rooney uh, lives. And uh, she had this shop that sort of sold scented candles and bits of driftwood with signs like, you know, every journey starts with a single step.
0: Or something to put in the toilet, saying "We aim to please." Will you aim to please? It's exactly that kind that, of hideousness, that
1: kind of thing. And although, yes, she undoubtedly um, Nadine, you know, comes from a pretty tough background in Liverpool. She has also was fairly early on in her adult life fairly prosperous, and so when she kind of lays into people for being too rich, too privileged, there's a bit of ah. Like, uh, but hold on, Nadine. I've, I've got, I'll tell you one story about her. There was a BBC. Today programme presenter, not, not that I'm, I won't name. Was he called Justin? He wasn't called Justin. Or Amol? He wasn't called Amol so either. Was, so he was called Nick. And uh, Nick grew up in Presbury. And uh, that, that's why Nick always says I'm a proud, you know, northerner. Though Presbury is not, let's be clear, inner city, Manchester. It's the posh end. It's the posh end of the northwest. And um, Nick's got this story about how a member of his family was driving a car in Presbury and Nadine crashed into the car. This was pre- before she ever got into politics.
0: Driving or driving, like, driving. So she didn't just and, walk and into. No, it. no,
1: she driving, and she jumped out of the car and said, "I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, you know, I really um, don't want to have to go through the hassle of doing the insurance. But can I just write you a check?" And she got out this Coots checkbook, Coots being a very posh bank, the the bank that the royal family banks with. And uh, she got out her Coots checkbook and just wrote this check out to a member of Nick's family. And uh, at the various points when Nadine was Secretary of State for Media and Culture and Sport, uh, she would have a go at Nick and others like him in the BBC for being too elitist. And I don't think I'd be telling too many tales out of school if I said that uh, people like Nick like me when she accused me of not knowing the price of milk. It's stuck, uh, stuck in the throat a bit.
0: Did you choke on your milk and cornflakes? <laughs>
1: yeah. But, you know, actually, one of the sort of... I think one of the sad things about Nadine's political career is there's been various times she was Oliver Letwin's research assistant when I was in the shadow Treasury team. You know, and she was a pretty good health minister during the Covid crisis. I mean, just the manner of her depart- the reason we've got this by-election, she literally has resigned because she hasn't got a seat in the House of Lords. I mean, what a ridiculous reason to walk out of your seat and entirely self-defeating because there's no doubt in my mind that she would have got her peerage if she had stayed in her seat, waited to the end of this parliament and been part of the resignation. It was was, So she's not got her peerage. She's caused this by-election. It's a massive headache for the Tories. She's won no friends again amongst the kind of Tory MPs. You judge
0: your friends by their friends and their enemies. And uh, so, you know, Anyway, the frustration. She had a thing. pop at you, David Cameron. Do you know, That's the odd the, the thing is, Ed... I, Boris the, Johnson, what were you doing?
1: Well, it, it, Boris Johnson would have been the first to have dismissed her before he was picking up all the waifs and strays who had been uh, overlooked by waifs the Cameron... Waifs and strays
0: with Cootes Bank accounts. With,
1: with, with, who had been overlooked by the Cameron regime. Um, but, so, uh, you know, I think one of the sad things is that I think the Nadine I first knew and worked with could have had an even better and bigger impact on British politics, but... Talking about British politics, we better turn now to, I think, the other big issue. We Obviously, we're talking about Gaza and Israel dominated the news. But the other thing we've heard in the last few days is that Britain's economic woes are growing and we may well be heading into recession. And we're going to talk about that next.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So we had the Institute for Fiscal Studies do their green budget this week, which they do every year.
1: Looks the green good. budget, tell people. we, You and I, we used to pore over the green budget back in the, back in the day. Tell people what it
0: is. They do it every year 400 pages of dense analysis of the economy but also the public finances and tax and spending decisions comes out a few weeks before the budget or the autumn statement and uh, can really shape the budget conversation
1: and it also cuts through the crap that chancellors are trying to get away with <laughs> the, that well. In my memory basically the ifs are the the sort of police officers of the fiscal political debate they're the people who call out whether it's labor or conservative politicians who are not telling the truth about the public finances.
0: It's true. Let's come to the public finances in a second. First mm. of all, the interesting thing they say first is they think the economy is going to go into recession next year. And they're actually going over some of the ground we've talked about in recent podcasts. The fact that... Uh, The rise in interest rates by the Bank of England is going to continue hitting consumers all through next year and the year after because people are going to be renegotiating fixed mortgage deals. The fact that they're saying if you have a 1% rise in underlying interest rates, that could cause a 15% fall in house prices, which would hit people's wealth and their confidence. All those things, maybe potentially inflation staying higher, as we saw this week, also leading to interest rates staying a bit higher for longer recession next year.
1: I think it's hard for people to get their head around this, but this is the intended impact of the Bank of England's policy. This is not something being visited on us by from outer space or by some virus like COVID or global financial crash. This is the Bank of England doing its job of trying to slow the British economy and trying to walk that narrow path between a deep recession,
0: which it obviously wants to avoid, and inflation getting out of control. And Rishi Sunak's target to get inflation down, he's only going to meet that inflation target if the economy slows and it's a bit painful for people. That's what is, as you say, intended. The other thing that people, I think, don't necessarily appreciate is that One of the big impacts on the British
1: economy at the moment is coming from the US economy being much stronger than people had anticipated, more resilient. And despite the Federal Reserve doing in America what the Bank of England's been doing here, which is jacking up interest rates, saying it's going to hold them higher for longer, and as a result, uh, US government debt yield going up and interest rates being high for Americans. Despite all of that, the American economy continues to power on. And now people are thinking, gosh, that means the Federal Reserve is going to have to hold those interest rates higher for longer. Essentially, the risk-free rate, the you know, the way you can invest your money, taking very little risk, because you're buying US government debt and the US government's unlikely to default on that debt, and get 5% or so back. And that means everything else in the economy becomes much more expensive.
0: The thing, though, in the IFS report, which I think will cause even more worry, both for the Chancellor but also for the shadow Chancellor hoping to be Chancellor at some point in the next year or so, is what the IFS say about the underlying state of the public finances, because they say that um, things haven't changed a lot compared to a year ago. The government is just about going to meet its fiscal rules to get the level of national debt much higher than it was um, 10, 20 years ago, falling at the end of um, the next uh, parliament. And That is based upon very tight um, public spending for public services later on and also a big rise in debt interest payments to service the national debt. But what the IFS says is there's three taxes in there which are much less certain, three big assumptions. One is that the government has said there's a temporary um, boost for investment through corporation tax, which is going to end. But they say if the government decides it's too painful to end it, that's £10 billion or more a year every year. Then there's also the assumption in the public finances that next spring the government is not only going to raise fuel duty in line with inflation, but by a further 5p for every litre sold. And the IFS says this hasn't happened for for years, seeing this kind of indexation. And if they don't go ahead with that, that's £6 billion a year. And then they also point out that... uh, The government is assuming they can carry on freezing the personal allowances, which is de facto increasing taxation. Let's come to that in a second. But first of all, on fuel duty, they have got a point, haven't they, the IFS, when they say, is the government going to really do fuel duty up by 5p? And if not, £6 billion a year is quite a big gap in the public finances.
1: Well, there is absolutely no chance that Jeremy Hunt is going to increase fuel duty in the run up to the general election. And if he tried, he would be defeated in the House of Commons as I was just over 10 years ago when I tried to do that. And after that, I made a great virtue of freezing fuel duty, But the truth was that I had no real political option because even then I would have been defeated in Parliament and the Tory party was a much more easy party to manage back then. So yes, there's pressure because they're not getting as much money in from
0: fuel duty. And Rishi Sunak's also now declared himself to be the motorist friend. He is the motorist friend, which
1: is where the Tory party always heads when it has not much else to say.
0: But, we should, yeah, yeah, but let's be honest, it's not going to raise fuel duty is by definite, 5p he's definitely, he's definitely, the motorist friend. He's definitely not going to raise There is fuel an issue, duty. though, here for me. I'm just going to ask you this. Yeah. The Office of Budget Responsibility yeah. you set up yeah. has to produce the forecast of for the public finances. Yeah. They take the government's assumptions, government's policy, and then do the forecast on that basis. But if you have something like this, where patently there's no possibility the government's going to raise fuel duty by 5p over inflation next year, for the OBR to still have to produce their public finances based on that forecast, I mean, isn't that what you were trying to avoid with the OBR, the kind of impression of cooking the books? Well,
1: I think the OBR is in a difficult situation and a, where you can't just say, whatever the Chancellor says, we're going to assume the opposite. And the Chancellor says, i.e. it's in the budget assumptions, that fuel duty is going to go up next year, even if everyone knows he's going to get up and say it's ridiculous. It's but I don't think the OBR wants to lose its authority by trying to second guess what the Chancellor is going to do. Much better to do what it does do, which is say, the Chancellor says fuel duty is going to go up. So we've put that in the books. But we should note that no Chancellor has done this for more than a decade and so you've got to assume that that's probably not going to happen. But I don't but, think you would but, but if they I was, publish
0: the public finances based upon that assumption, then they wouldn't be meeting their fiscal rules and debt would be rising at the end of the Parliament. Right. So I think there's a bigger problem
1: here for the government, which is that the numbers are going away for them as you approach a general election, which is why they've kept the fiscal uh, drag on, i.e. this is freezing the allowances. It's the opposite of what I did as Chancellor. We actually had a question about this
0: from Coza. Should we play it? Absolutely. Hello, George and Ed. My question is around fiscal drag. I think it's contributing to the cost of living crisis. I wondered if you thought it would become a political football ahead of the next general election.
1: So this is essentially freezing the amount you can earn before you have to start paying income tax, the tax-free allowance, which... I increased to over £12,500. It was part of the coalition agreement with the Liberal Democrats. I have to say it was a quite straightforward negotiation. I said, I want to be in government. What's your price? They said, you've got to cut income tax. And I said, OK, done. And well, the way we cut income tax was by increasing above inflation the amount you could keep before you start paying tax. It's quite complicated, but the people see it in their pay packet because they're just paying less tax. Now they're paying more tax because Rishi Sunak as Chancellor and now as Prime Minister has been freezing it. It's an age-old trick of chancellors. I certainly don't hold it against him. He's got to get the money in whatever way you can. And it's, there's the old um French finance minister from the French Revolution period. You say you've got to pluck the goose in whatever way doesn't make the goose squawk when you're trying to raise tax. But it does have a real impact. It, it's raising around 50 billion pounds extra a year than people expected because inflation is higher than people expected. And that is a massive tax rise. It's the biggest tax rise, actually, since that other great Thatcherite hero, Geoffrey
0: Howe, put up VAT in the early 80s. It's also more than just the normal fiscal drag because what people traditionally thought fiscal drag meant was that you know, if inflation is going up by, say, 5%, and that means all the personal allowances, but also the point at which you start paying a higher rate tax goes up by 5% in line with inflation. But if wages are rising faster than prices, so wages are rising by 7% rather than 5%, that means people's incomes on average are going up a bit faster than the personal allowances are rising, and therefore more people end up going into the higher rate tax um, band. Here, though, they haven't said the difference between inflation and wage inflation. They froze it entirely. So the personal allowance isn't rising at all. The level at which people start paying higher rate tax just over fifty thousand pounds is not changing in a world in which inflation and wages are rising by six, seven, eight percent. So huge numbers more people are not only starting to pay tax with the personal allowance, but also paying the higher rate right. of tax. So AD... what does so this means – So when Nigel Lawson, I said I was at Nigel Lawson's memorial
1: service this week. And there were various people who gave tributes, including Rishi Sunak was there. He gave a tribute and the Archbishop of Canterbury gave a tribute, even though, by the way, Nigel Lawson was a secular Jew who was also an atheist. So it was a rather odd occasion. To be fair to the Archbishop, he acknowledged that and said, well, one of us is going to be right on this in the end about the existence of God. And Norman Lamont gave, also gave a tribute. Norman Lamont was at uh, that time Nigel Lawson's number 2 when they were in the treasury together and he made out you know he pointed out that Lawson's great budget 1988 budget he slashed the top rate of tax cut it to 40p but at the time only a very small proportion of the population paid it you had to be a pretty wealthy business person or entrepreneur and now it's gone from about three percent of the population back then to ten percent of the population, and people who
0: are nurses and teachers are paying that forty percent rate. And it's, and, and, it, and it's rising hugely. It's going from ten to fourteen percent of the population in the next right. And four that's going years. to be loads more people coming to be top about taxpayers because, as you said, I think when Rishi Sunak, as Chancellor, said he was going to freeze personal allowances, he thought that tax rise was eight billion a year. As you said, it's more like fifty billion. By the way, you could now.
1: be every year you could build HS two Rishi. Well. There you go. Yeah, you don't
0: but can't. so, um, unfortunately, he's, he's he's only just meeting his fiscal rules. It's it's it's. Um, but do you know there's interest? So, Rishi but, soon- but, but, but it goes to this question for the IFS: Do you actually think chancellors? I mean, I you know, for people who open their pay packet at the moment and they see their pay packet and their tax and they think, well, I didn't know taxes have gone up. So why am I paying so much more tax than I was one or two years ago? The answer is because of fiscal drag and the freezing of personal allowances. And after a while people will say, what's going on? It's stealth tax, they'll say.
1: Right, and it's always the case. When chancellors find a way of jacking up the taxes, it usually lasts for a few years and then it breaks and then you can't touch it again for years afterwards. That's actually what happened with fuel. So Jeremy Hunt,
0: Rachel Reeves, what are they going to do?
1: Well, I think Hunt's particular problem is this. The fiscal forecasts are getting worse. You're heading into a general election. He wants to have a giveaway budget. And what the IFS is telling him is not only is there a recession coming, but your scope for giving away money is being greatly reduced. And what Norman well, the, Lamont, the said, there
0: no scope for right. giving away money. And
1: what Norman Lamont said in his address to this church, this memorial service to the assembled Tory tribe, including our Prime Minister, is that Lawson always said, if you want lower taxes, you've got to pay for them with lower public spending. You can't borrow for your lower taxes. You have to do the hard work of cutting spending. And so I think the Tories are going to end up pencilling in very tough spending plans, which may never in practice be fulfilled, even if they're re-elected. But they're going to pencil in very tough spending plans in the later years. And they're going to call Labour's bluff and say, are you going to match those plans? And if you don't match Tory spending plans, then there's a big Labour tax bombshell coming. And that's the shape of the general election being formed before our eyes.
0: The thing, though, about fiscal drag, the one thing it is doing by bringing in more tax revenue, it is delivering the highest level of taxes in our economy since the Second World War or before. For um, Jeremy Hunt or Rishi Sunak to accuse Rachel Reeves as being the person who is going to deliver the tax bombshell when they themselves have had the biggest rise in taxes of any parliament since the Second World War, I'm not sure that's going to work for them. I think if I was Rachel Reeves, I'd spend my the whole time calling this, I would call this the Sunak-Hunt tax rise. And I would talk about it a lot because that's my best way to make sure that as it becomes painful, I can blame a predecessor.
1: Well, we'll, we'll find out if Rachel listens to our podcast mm. and see how, how, see what Labour does next. Now, let's turn to another issue which is on the horizon but could come to dominate this political autumn. The Covid inquiry, people haven't really focused on it because of everything else we've been talking about in the news. But it's going to be a big moment when you hear Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak give their explanations of how they conducted themselves during that pandemic.
0: So the COVID inquiry is underway, a statutory inquiry led by a judge. Loads of power to get evidence and WhatsApp messages and government papers and all those things. It's going to take years to even gather the evidence, two or three years. But in this early phase, it's looked at what was happening before the pandemic and now moving into um the early months, the decisions made in February and March 2020. You actually gave evidence in that first phase about pre-preparation.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty impressive inquiry. It's a room full of lawyers, representatives of various pressure groups and different parts of the governments of the UK. I, I can tell you, you know, I stopped being chancellor four years before COVID hit. And even for me, there were... Many questions I had to get my head around. I had to read hundreds and hundreds of pages of internal Treasury documents from the time. And I wasn't there during COVID. So I think the first thing to say is that for these individuals who are giving evidence this autumn, like Boris Johnson, like Matt Hancock and like Rishi Sunak, who's got a pretty important day job as Prime Minister, there's an enormous amount of work that has to be done to read all this paperwork, to get your head around the questions, to think about how you're going to answer them. So it's enormously time consuming. I was talking to one of the very well-known officials who's going to give evidence at the inquiry. He says it's completely dominated his autumn uh, preparing for this appearance.
0: So that's the first thing. And presumably for you, it was all about, as you said, you weren't there in the pandemic. It was all about whether decisions you had made about public spending, the National Health Service in particular, had left the NHS like... Enfeebled and not able to cope with a shock like this.
1: Right. So, one of the charges made is that austerity had somehow left Britain not as well equipped to deal with COVID. And I very strongly disagreed with that line of questioning.
0: Well, it's true um, on the NHS.
1: No, I don't agree because I actually think that because we got the public finances into better shape, we were able to flex the finances, or my successors were, and do things like the furlough scheme and spend. Billions and billions of pounds doing so without worrying about a fiscal crisis,
0: but we kind we're, of. But I mean, NHS spending since nineteen forty eight, three percent a year, under Labour, double that. Under you, half that. I mean, that must have meant.
1: That's because you left me with a massive hole in the public. That's because Liam Byrne wrote this letter, But but Independent
0: of that, the truth is NHS spending rose much less fast in those years. And therefore, there was fewer doctors and nurses, less capacity. It must have meant the NHS had a harder time. That's all.
1: Well, I don't agree with that, because I, I think if we had not fixed the finances, Britain would not have been in a position to take the action it did. But what's interesting is for Johnson, for Sunak... No, they were there in the heart of this crisis. And I think the interesting thing is, is it going to tell us anything we don't already know? So is it going to tell us that Sunak was not really in favour of the lockdown? Yes. I think there are going to be lots of quite interesting material coming out that says... Although not
0: from Sunak's WhatsApp messages. Well, he, What he, is going
1: on? Little noticed a couple of weeks ago. He said he'd lost all the WhatsApp messages during his time. I
0: saw that. He said he's changed chance. his phone and therefore lost them. But, I mean, I've changed my phone, but you don't lose your WhatsApp messages if you change your phone because your phone just kind of picks up from where you left off. I mean, that's how they work. It's ridiculous. And Rishi Sunak is, of course, a Stanford graduate from the West Coast of California, so I suspect he's quite tech-enabled. And didn't Boris Johnson end up handing over all his messages? Yes, he did. If Boris Johnson can find his WhatsApp messages, why can't Rishi? Well, because maybe Rishi's a smarter politician than Boris Johnson. Right, well, I know, but it's a statute of inquiry. You can't say... I mean, you know, I threw my phone in the sea. It didn't really work for Rebecca Vardy. No, it did not. But
1: I think people will, they'll think they can get Rishi Sunak. They'll think we're going to show that he was anti-lockdown, that he his restaurant scheme was ill-advised, that, you know, encouraged people to go out. I don't think that's going to matter. It's not going to change people's view of Rishi Sunak. And inside the Conservative Party, where there's now quite a strong feeling that the lockdown did huge damage to education, to waiting lists, to prison places and the like, the fact that he was in private arguing against more stringent lockdown is probably going to help him, not hinder him. The damage is going to come, in my view, when it comes to Johnson's hearing. And People are going to say, well, so what? We already knew Boris Johnson was like a terrible administrator and it was all chaotic and the advisors were all saying this, that, and the other. And Dominic Cummings was having a go at Matt Hancock and Matt Hancock was saying, I was the only sensible person in the room. We know all that. But it is going to remind people of Partygate. And I think the one thing that has really fixed in people's heads as the great Tory scandal of the last 13 years is Partygate. Um, and I watched that Channel 4 documentary drama the other day. And, you know, I got this wrong at the time. I remember thinking, is this such a serious thing? And, you know, I mean, I can see why people are upset about it. And people whose political judgment I really trust said to me, you're getting, getting this wrong, George. This is going to be absolutely fatal for the Tories. And they have not shrugged off Partygate. Rishi Sunak himself got a fixed penalty notice for attending one of the events there. And the COVID inquiry is just going to be another opportunity to remind people... And it's
0: really hard for the Conservatives to get out from underneath that. I'm not sure you're right about this. I I think you're right, by the way, about Partygate. But because you're going to have all this detailed evidence, papers, officials, advisers, eat out to help out. If it turns out Rishi Sunak was advised not to do this on health grounds because it was risky and he did it, that's a problem for him. We'll find out from the evidence given by Gavin Williamson that experts told him and his officials in the weeks before that going for the algorithm which they went for to simulate marking of GCSEs and A-levels would fail and would be a disaster. They ploughed on anyway. If it turns out, you know, my mum was in a care home throughout the pandemic and lots of people in the rooms close to her on the corridor where she lives, lost their lives in January 2021. If it turns out that there was direct advice from experts about moving people with COVID into care homes or the opening up of lockdown in December 2020, which was, if you remember, very disputed up till Christmas, I think that brings back big issues about judgment. I don't think it's um, all gone and forgotten, but, and moved on. I think lots of people still feel deeply emotional about those things. But uh,
1: you see, I would love this inquiry... To come up with an answer to the question which i still don't think we have the answer to and i don't myself know really the answer to which is if let's say for example a new covid variant suddenly emerged would we again shut down all the schools when we know the impact that's had on kids education would we again restrict all the operations in the hospitals that weren't to do with covid even though we know what that's done to people's health and the waiting lists would we keep prisoners in their cells for 24 hours a day you know all of those things that were done at the time there's big questions about whether they were the right things to do. And I'd love the COVID inquiry to say, whoever is the future government, whatever the disease is, we've done all the work. And on balance, we think you should lock down the schools or on balance, you think you we shouldn't. To my mind, instead of just like Boris Johnson's to blame, ha ha, ha let's have a proper statutory inquiry, which helps future governments navigate those really, really hard questions, which by the way, we as citizens in the country at
0: the time were fiercely debating ourselves. I understand that. Uh, There was actually a very interesting paper by the Institute for Government about these kind of inquiries. And what it says is that as ways to learn lessons for the future that often don't work that well, because it's quite hard for a judge-led detailed inquiry to start speculating about what you would do differently next. But as a way of allocating blame for what happened, they can be very powerful indeed. And I, you know, if I was the government looking over the next year, thinking we're going to have intense debates about who made what decision on the basis of what advice on things which people then and still now feel quite emotional about. So um, I'd much rather have an inquiry which also did the things you're saying. But I think the allocation of blame over the next year could be quite painful. Well, maybe it will bring closure, but something to watch politically this
1: autumn are going to be the appearances of Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. They're the last two witnesses, as I understand it. I'm not sure this is public yet. Who are going I didn't to... know that was true. Right. So... so they're giving evidence in the first week of December. They are going to be the final witnesses of this part of the inquiry. And if you think of anything that the government's trying to do over the autumn to get back on the political front foot... They've got this big roadblock coming their way of the COVID inquiry appearances in early December.
0: And Rishi Sunak will, I would think, be back again, giving more evidence over the course of next year as well, issue by issue. It's not going to go away. Which is why we think it's more important than people realise at the moment.
1: So let's turn to everyone who has been sending in all their questions and comments. We've been really impressed by the scale and the quality of these questions. And it's hard to
0: pick a few, but here we go. So our first question this week is another chance for us to explain a term. If you remember last week, Woody asked us to define three-line whip. And this week, uh, we had a few different terms. The one we've chosen is from Mike.
1: Hi, Ed and George. Love the show. We listen to it over here in Belgium. I've got a question for you both. Statecraft, what is it? And can you give any examples of it, preferably from this century?
0: Statecraft. Now... I'm going to give you, first of all, a bit of a jaundiced Treasury view. You know, in the Treasury economics underpinned by kind of theory and models and kind of careful words. In the Foreign Office, you know, these diplomats, it's kind of common sense, really, isn't it? Diplomacy, what the Foreign Office do. But you have to sort of pretend there's an underpinning theory to it, so you call it statecraft. But actually, Is it really more than just politics? I guess... um, It's a bit of a wanky
1: term, isn't it?
0: That's my um, (laughs) jaundiced treasury view. But I was trying to think to myself, what is it? What is it about common sense politics in, in foreign affairs? Which is obviously really hard and difficult. And I think maybe statecraft is the ability to see round corners. And when you're dealing with an event in a part of the world happening right now, to be able to think, well, actually, what will that mean? Next year and the year after, not just in the area where it's happening, for example, at the moment in Israel, Gaza, but how will that affect the economy in the oil market? How will it affect relations with Iran? How will it affect um, the way in which uh, people see the conflict in Ukraine to start to anticipate the next step and the next step and then be able to deal with those things in a preemptive way? Maybe that's statecraft.
1: I think you can point to a couple of recent examples. I would say uh, the big push under, for example, Obama to shift America towards the Pacific, followed up with Biden doing more in the Pacific than previous presidents. That's kind of a version of statecraft. You might not like it, but what the Chinese are doing with their One Belt, One Road initiative is an example by building alliances around the world, and that's causing problems for the West. So there are examples of it today, and I think we're going to see more as we move into a world of big power politics of the kind you used to get in the 19th century or before the Second World War, You may see more of this. Here's our next question. It's from Diba.
0: Hi, Ed and George. I'm enjoying the podcast immensely, especially all the personal anecdotes. So please
1: keep up the good work. My question to you both is, if you were Rishi Sunak, when would you call the general election?
0: I recognise that voice. Really? Really? Trainee barrister, and she worked uh, in my parliamentary office 10 years ago. She was brilliant. So, thank you, Deba, for listening. I'm so pleased. And uh, what's the answer then? I think, George, you should answer this. Uh, When's he going to call the election?
1: It's very straightforward, which is he is going to leave it until he thinks he's got some chance of winning it. And if that moment doesn't arise between now and when he has to call it, which is January 2025, he will leave it till January 2025. There's a way of describing this strategy, which is it's a cross between Mr. McCorber and John Travolta. So Mr. McCorber is the Dickens character and John Travolta from Greece. And it's a combination of staying alive and hoping something's
0: going to turn up. There was a very good column by Patrick Maguire in The Times a few days ago pointing out that the last time a a Conservative party went six years, as it would be if they went to the very end, was 1906, and that ended up in a disastrous election result. So be careful what you're aiming for. But
1: the Cameron Coalition government went the full five years. But it didn't get into six well, it is, five, it, it is just over six. It's because you have to call the election by the fifth anniversary of your last election, and then you have a few weeks of campaigning afterwards. I mean, but you, it didn't work, did it? It no, didn't really work for Gordon Brown in no, 2010, yeah. leaving it to the last possible date. Didn't work for John
0: Major in 97. Didn't
1: work in 97, but it did work for John Major in 92. Major. And as we know, fans of this podcast will know, we're, we
0: do debate this, is it 92 or 97? I'm going to give you a counter view. Rishi Sunak, the one thing in calling the election you want to do is surprise people and take ownership. And the longer this goes on, the more he will look like he's being driven by events and not in control. He's going to have another Conservative Party conference. Maybe his big mistake was, what he should have done, is call the general election in Manchester at the Conservative Party conference a couple of weeks ago, take control, do something by surprise, go out and Yeah, and he'd um, be looking for a job <laughs> on the west coast oh, of America
1: oh, by now if he'd done oh, that. Oh, maybe. The trouble with that, I don't disagree with you, Ed. Like it's, I, was trying to, I was trying to give you some reason. No, I don't disagree with you that, of course, it doesn't look great waiting to the last possible moment. But the alternative, which is today's the day I'm going to call the general election, even though I don't have to. And even though I'm 20 points behind in the independent polls, that day doesn't come. You know, you're sitting. I, was, I worked in 10 Downing Street in the run up to the 97 election. There was endless speculation John Major might go early. And just every single day you confronted that question in Downing Street, you came to the conclusion, mm,
0: well, we're going to lose if we call it of today, so let's see what happens tomorrow. The only thing I'd say from 2007 is the one thing not to do is let the speculation take hold and then not call the election. That can cause you quite a lot of problems too. Our final question this week is from Scott. Hello, thoroughly enjoying the podcast. Uh, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on Lord Moore's recommendation to break up the Treasury by creating a new ministry for public spending. Thank you. Francis Maud, another great idea from Francis Maud.
1: Well, this is an old chestnut which has been doing the rounds in British politics for many decades, which is the Treasury is too powerful and you you should have some counterbalancing department that either does budgets or does economic strategy.
0: There was, I think Labour floated. Didn't Harold Wilson have a version of this? He did. So um, in in 2004-05, John Burt tried to persuade Tony John Blair. John Burt was? John Burt was, was an advisor to Tony Blair who had been guy. ex-head of the BBC. He did this paper on doing exactly what Francis Moore is predicting and Tony Blair decided not to do it, rejected this advice. Harold Wilson tried it in 1964. He tried to split the Treasury, set up the Department for Economic Affairs. George Brown was put in to drive this alternative power Power base, on the economy, to the uh, Treasury, and it totally failed. And if you look at, you know, Prime Ministerial-Chancellorial partnerships of the last um, uh, few decades, we can, uh, in a future podcast, talk about which was the best partnership or not between Margaret Thatcher and Nigel Lawson, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, David Cameron and George Osborne. But in all those three cases, Prime Ministers decided not to try and undermine the treasury and break it up because they decided in the end, sharing the job between two people is better than one person trying to take it all on and do it themselves because it doesn't work. Well, I think it's a huge mistake
1: to take one of the departments in Whitehall that really works well and has a strong ethos and proved itself, e.g. during the pandemic on things like inventing the furlough scheme, that it can move incredibly quickly. I think it's a huge mistake to try and break up that department. And I I would say to anyone who's prime minister, walk out of your front door, turn around, and look what it says on the door. It says number 10, but it also says first lord of the treasury. And prime ministers who use the treasury, like Margaret Thatcher did, like Tony Blair did in the early days with Gordon Brown, uh, and like I think David Cameron did with me, are prime ministers who get things done. And those who say, "I, I hate the treasury, they're not having any influence over my government including some of the recent Prime Ministers who've said that, have achieved very little. By the way, Rishi Sunak knows that because he's been Chancellor. He has huge respect for the Treasury and was much admired by Treasury civil servants. Uh, When he was Chancellor, I think he knows that. So he'll be saying to Francis Maud, thank you very much, Francis, uh, and it will sit on his ever-growing intro.
0: Francis Maud, who predicted the recession made in Downing Street in 1998 and got it wrong. It's not the first time. (laughs) He also but I like Francis Mod a lot and he
1: also invented the term stealth taxes. There was an American stealth bomb that had been shot down over one of those Bosnian-Serbian campaigns at the time and he said of Gordon Brown's various tax manoeuvres they were stealth taxes and that word has stuck.
0: I know and Rishi Sunak has uh, taken that on board as we've been discussing today. One more question actually George you don't know about this one but Rob sent this in a question and I decided that we had to ask um, this to you because he actually sent a picture in. Now it's quite hard to have a picture on a podcast I know but we're going to put it up on our our socials for people to see Uh, because Rob says great show really enjoy listening this seems a good time to mention that I walk past our local branch of Pizza Hut delivery every day and have wondered for years why George Osborne is on the wall in there eating a stuffed crust with a couple of kids was this a way to help the coffers be filled in the austerity years post 2010. You are on the wall, a picture of you. I've seen the picture. It absolutely, totally looks like you. Okay, someone's now hand. You up. This is a setup. What are oh, you? I'm what are you? I'm now been. It is definitely you. I mean, I thought to myself pizza. I thought, you know, if it was woking, they may have been getting you mixed up with somebody else. But I don't. I don't. <laughs> but I don't think you look like him.
1: I mean, you not suggesting that I'm uh, I share anything in common where, with a junior
0: member of the royal family. I'm certainly not saying that. I just wondered um, whether whether you know. I'm looking at this picture. It where does is the, this Pizza Hut? Well, is, is, that, is it in Woking or somewhere else? It's. Uh, well, I don't think it's me, although it does look like you. We're going to put it on our social media. It's, it's not a bad photo, by the way. I'm not. I'm not unhappy
1: to be compared with this person. We would like I to. Think, know, do I,
0: you think it looks like George?
1: Okay, so I have a been in that pizza hut but i am a big fan of the pizza express on notting hill gate of
0: course Court notting hill yeah it
1: was also tony Benn's favorite restaurant well he was another um,
0: one of these posh guys wasn't
1: he <laughs> lord stansgate yeah. who gave up his peerage to become a, a kind of corbinista before before the days of Corbyn. and i was once at dinner there when we were in opposition uh i was shadow chancellor i was having dinner with david cameron just the two of us and in the middle of dinner, my phone rang. It was Gordon Brown. Now this was not a normal occurrence. Gordon Brown calling me. He calls me up. He's furious. He's you in. His... A I time. was shadow chancellor. He's furious, and he's he's in Israel. It's very topical. He I think wants to go to Gaza, or he's involved in some big peace initiative. You will probably remember all this. And he wanted to be paired with me, which for those, there's another parliamentary term. But He basically says, "I don't want to have to come back and vote on some key." thing because I'm here in Israel. If you agree not to vote, George, then I can stay away because it's like one down on the Labour side, one down on the Tory side. And I said to him, well, I thought it was perfectly reasonable because, by the way, it was a vote Labour were at risk of losing and you don't pair on votes where Labour at risk of losing or the government's at risk of losing. I said, look, we'll get you paired with another Tory MP, but I'm around, so I'm not going to be that pair. He was so cross. I put him on speaker. He didn't know this. David Cameron was listening. And he says, I've never been so disgracefully treated in all my years in politics. And he hung up. He just like hung up on me. And I have to say, I did turn to David Cameron. And I said, we can definitely beat this guy.
0: <laughs> he was, as you say, absolutely furious. He was out in Israel. He had this big pack of journalists with him. They'd only been out there, I think, for like a few hours. Um, and then because this vote happened in that way, they then had to... Because you wouldn't agree. I think he thought that if you and he did it as Chancellor and Shadow Chancellor, he could miss the vote. But other than that, he had to come back. So they had to come straight back. He was, thank goodness he didn't know you were in Notting Hill Gate in a pizza restaurant. I would say that is the only time in his whole career where he would have absolutely agreed with Nadine Dorries about you and David Cameron. Two <laughs> posh boys.
1: I think, I think he seemed to agree with Nadine Dorries quite a lot about last day. But anyway... Please keep the questions coming. Uh, They're fantastic, including random pictures from pizza restaurants. Send them
0: in to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. And you can also send us your messages, questions. Also see George's picture in Is It Woking? the Pizza Hut on our socials at PolCurrency. That's at P-O-L Currency. And you can also see clips from the show there.
1: That's it for this week. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephoneca production.